Well, uh, welcome to nap time. Thank you, Pastor Julie, for those encouraging words. Let's meet this week on that performance evaluation. For nearly 40 years, a huge granite slab lay in the storage yard exposed to to the elements. It was 15 feet tall and weighed nearly 7 tons. The marble was considered of inferior quality and it was even twisted in such a way that it was thought that no great statue could ever be produced from it. Uh, It was too expensive to waste, but over the decades, one artist after another tried and just had to walk away from it. Uh, They called this hunk of rock the giant. After decades, it actually had a nickname. And no one believed that the giant would ever be anything more than a misshapen, useless, abandoned chunk of stone. Until a certain 26-year-old sculptor laid eyes on it. The giant, which had been rejected by the rest of the world, looked perfect to him. In fact, he could imagine how to use the twisted nature of the stone in order to produce a figure that seemed to be leaning back and coiled, ready for the violent act that was about to follow. The year was 1501. The artist was Michelangelo. The stone, rejected by everyone else, Well, Michelangelo chose that stone and transformed it into the most recognized sculpture in the world, the David. I wonder if Michelangelo ever read 1 Peter 2, because there is a remarkable similarity between that story and the theme of this scripture passage. Turn with me, if you will, as we continue our journey through Peter's letter to exiles, believers in an unbelieving world, we turn to 1 Peter 2, chapter 4. Here's what Peter writes. As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone that is chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know how many times I've read this passage of Scripture. It's the most famous, probably, out of the book of First Peter. But this week, as I was reading about it and thinking about this message, something suddenly jumped out at me that I had never thought about. Why was Peter so fascinated with all of these stone references from the Old Testament? Not one, but actually three different rock references, stone references. Why was he so fascinated with them? And then I thought, 
What is the guy's nickname? What was his nickname? Rocky. Jesus, his name was Simon, but Jesus nicknamed him Petros, which means Rocky. And I wondered if Rocky took a look at these passages and, and was just captivated by them. Because three times in the Old Testament, hundreds of years earlier than, than the time of Jesus, the Messiah was described as a rock, as a stone, as the cornerstone. And I wonder if Peter the rock was suddenly captivated by the idea of Jesus the rock, Jesus the cornerstone. And he saw himself as something of a chip off the old block. To understand this story and the power of this image, we really have to understand the temple. The Jerusalem temple. It was built on a hill that was called Zion, so often it was referred to as Zion. It was the center of the Jewish universe. The Jews believed that Almighty God dwelt in the innermost room in that temple. It was called the sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. It's not that they thought he was contained in that room, but they believed that God really dwelt there in a very special and powerful way. It would be like I would say to you, you see that wall? Behind that wall is God's room. That's where he hangs out. And you can't go in there, but this is the place where God hangs out. And so we get together in this outer room and we get to be near him and we get to wave at him. Did you know that there are wave offerings in the Old Testament? So we get to be near Him and wave to Him and say, Hey God, we get to sing and pray to Him and offer gifts to Him. And maybe most important of all, we get to offer sacrifices in this place so that that God who dwells in there would forgive us and we could have a relationship with Him. This building, the temple, made it possible for the Jews to have a relationship with Almighty God, Yahweh. The temple was the focus, the locus of life in Jerusalem. Everything was centered around it. So when Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, Behold, I, this is God speaking, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. He was quoting God's own words. He was saying the starting point for my temple the foundation of the relationship that I want to have with my people is this metaphorical cornerstone which I will appoint, I have laid, I have chosen. That's the first thing that we learn out of this. The cornerstone was essential. It had to be laid in the right place, at the right angle, at the right depth. It had to be perfectly straight. It had to be perfectly flat. And it had to be able to bear the weight. It had to have the strength to carry the weight of the entire structure. And Peter, along with the early church, understood that these prophecies were pointing to Jesus. Jesus was the cornerstone upon which God's relationship with the entire world would rest. Jesus was perfectly and uniquely suited to this purpose. And that's the first thing we learn from the first of the three great stone passages coming out of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 28. Here's the second. Even though Jesus was the cornerstone chosen by God, precious for God, uniquely appointed to it, perfect for the job, he was rejected. He was rejected by those who should have welcomed him. God, who was the architect of our salvation, had selected Jesus as the perfect foundation stone 
He was right there, ready to go. But when he appeared, the builders, the religious leaders of the time said, we don't want him. Our God, Yahweh, said, I choose him. And humanity said, too bad, we reject him. That is an astounding declaration of this passage. In fact, Jesus actually mentioned this psalm, Psalm 118, in a parable that he taught in the last week of his life. As he was preparing to be arrested and killed, he taught the parable of the wicked tenants. Do you remember this story? It, it was the story of, of the landowner who lived distantly. And the people who worked his vineyards were wicked and they wanted to keep the proceeds to themselves. They didn't want to pay the landowner what he was due. The landowner sent messengers to, to retrieve what was his, to receive payment. And when the tenants saw them coming, they beat them, and in some instances, they even killed them. And so the landowner thought, well, I'll send my own son. Surely they will respect. Surely they will honor my own son, and they will pay me what is my due. And instead, of course, in the parable, when they see it's the son, they think, here's our chance, and they killed him. Then Jesus goes to Psalm 118, this, this psalm that I have been quoting, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he was talking about himself. A few days later, Jesus, the chosen one of God, would be murdered by the religious authorities who had been praying and anticipating his coming for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years through their people. So according to these Old Testament prophecies, Jesus was the cornerstone of faith that had been chosen by God. God's relationship with the world would be based upon him. But the second thing we learned is he was rejected. He was rejected by the people who should have received him. And then finally in verse eight, uh, chapter uh, 8 of Isaiah, the third cornerstone passage, we read that the cornerstone has become a stumbling stone or a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And in other words, what this passage says is because humanity rejected Jesus, the very foundation upon which God wanted to build his relationship with the world, instead of building their lives upon that stone, he says they will trip on that stone. They will fall over that stone and it will be to their peril. Harsh words. I've been to uh, Israel ten times, but without a doubt the most memorable ending to a trip with uh, some fellow pilgrims was the time when on the very last day in the afternoon of that day one of our number tripped over a stone and fell and severely broke her arm. I mean it was an awful break. We, we were lucky to get her patched up and on an airplane home that night. It was so uh, it was just awful. And Peter says that those who reject Jesus, reject the precious chosen agent of God's salvation they are going to trip and fall right over the top of him. And it will be to their destruction. Let's put all of this together. Peter was saying that Jesus, the, the cornerstone, is actually, he's the new temple of God. In Jesus, God has come near to us. In Jesus, we can come near to God. We can worship him. We can pray to him. We can sing to him and, and serve him. And most importantly, it is Jesus who has accomplished the sacrifice that allows us to be forgiven of our sins and drawn into relationship with Almighty God forever. Not ongoing sacrifices. It has been done. It is once and for all, and it is finished. 
In Jesus and in no other can we be forgiven our sin and healed of our brokenness and welcomed into an eternal relationship with the Father who wants us. And this message is a stumbling block. It is a rock of offense for those who choose not to believe. This is the exclusive claim of Christianity. That in Jesus Christ and in no other can be found a relationship with God. And we Christians make this claim not because we are snooty or snotty, although we can be both of those things. We make this claim because Jesus made this claim. When Jesus sat down with his disciples at the Last Supper, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He didn't say, I am one of the ways. He didn't say, I can point you to the way. He said, I am the way. And no one comes to the Father but by me. That is exclusive. And to many, it is offensive. It was then, and it is today. And so this claim right here is what makes us spiritual exiles in this world. This unbelieving world in which we live is increasingly resistant to the exclusive claims of Jesus. They view us when we hold these things to be true, to be bigoted and narrow. And they long for us to temper our words a little bit. If only we could say something like, well, Jesus is my way to God, but But he's one of many ways, and each person has to find their own path. If only we would temper our words and say, we can still admire Jesus for his moral teachings, but we just got to set aside all of that salvation stuff. If only we could water it down. If only we could dilute it. If we just could take the edge off, it would be so much less offensive, so much less off-putting, and so much less the gospel. We did not invent this gospel. God the Father did. We did not teach about this gospel. Jesus Christ the Son did. And we do not make this gospel possible for people. We do not convince people of this gospel. It is God the Holy Spirit who does this. But the exclusive claims of Jesus, the claim that the foundation of God's relationship with humanity rests squarely and only upon Him has always been a stumbling block. It will always be. We must not be offensive. Our hypocrisy, our arrogance must not be the cause of offense. Our inability to love each other as we talked about last week or to love our neighbors ought not to be what trips people up. But if we proclaim a gospel that doesn't ever result in some offense, it may mean that we have not proclaimed the true gospel. And this was Peter's message. Jesus is the chosen, the precious, the living cornerstone of God. How honored Peter must have been when he realized what nickname Jesus had given him. When Peter said, Simon, you are my mini rock. You are my mini cornerstone and upon you I'm going to build my church. I mean, he, he realized I am a chip off of the old block. But here's the punchline for the rest of this text so are you. So are we. We are chips off the old block. 
Take a look at verse 4 one more time. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Get that. Jesus is the living stone, but guess what? Everyone who belongs to Jesus is a living stone. You yourselves, living stones, being built up into a spiritual house. And here, frankly, we come to what is a second controversial part of this passage. The first controversial part is that Jesus would dare to claim exclusive Uh, exclusivity in the salvation of humanity. Here's the second part that so many people find offensive. The church of Jesus Christ plays an essential role in God's salvation plan. The church of Jesus plays an essential role in God's plan of salvation. Remember, Jesus said, upon this rock, that is Peter's statement of faith that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, upon this rock of this statement of faith, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. But how many times do you hear today, well, I'm fine with Jesus, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church, right? You heard that? Our American individualism has spilled into our Americanized Christianity. It is isolated and individualistic and self-centered and self-serving. And let me just say this as clearly and as kindly as I can. There is no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. One ancient father, Cyprian of Carthage, put it even more bluntly. He said, outside the church, there is no salvation. Jesus saved us out of our sin and into his church, into his gathering of flawed but forgiven believers. That is our only option. We don't get to be saved all by ourselves. We are saved out of sin and isolation and into the church of Jesus Christ. And yet the church can be so disappointing, can't it? I spoke just this last week to a young woman who was raised in the church, but she's so disillusioned by the hypocrisy that she has seen that she has stepped away. She loves Jesus, she still loves God, but she doesn't love the church very much right now. I spoke with another couple who have gone through a terrible scandal, a heart-breaking moral failing of, of a trusted leader. And that was terrible for them, they said, but the hardest part was the vicious social media attacks by other Christians as they pointed fingers and cast blame and they tear each other apart and throw each other under the bus. And in the process, all of this bring contempt upon the church, the beloved bride of Christ. Perhaps you have known people who have said, I don't need the church to be a Christian. Perhaps you are one of those persons. Well... Beloved, you are wrong. Jesus did not save you into isolation. He saved you into community, into his beloved church with all its warts and wrinkles and hypocrisy. As flawed as we are and as disappointing as we can be, Jesus has never given up on us. We, his church, his bride are precious to him and essential to his work of salvation on this world. I want you to listen once more to what Peter says. 
You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house or as a temple is what he really is saying. You are being built up as living stones into a temple. In 70 AD, it was a catastrophic moment in the, in the, in the history of the Jewish people. Because it was that year that the Roman army swept into Jerusalem to crush a rebellion. And as one final violent act, they destroyed the temple utterly. Jesus had predicted that there would not be a single stone remaining one upon another. And that was literally fulfilled. To this day, the place where God's temple, His gathering place, His dwelling place... Where it stood, it's, it's an empty spot on the, on the temple mount. Now, if the temple was where God dwelt, if the temple was where men and women could have access to God, if the temple was the place where thanksgiving could be offered and sins atoned for, and the temple is gone, then what do we do? Where is God to be found? How will seekers Make their way to God. Who can offer forgiveness and hope when God's temple is gone? Well, it's not gone. That's what Peter is saying here. It has been rebuilt. Because guess where the, God's temple is today? Right here. Not here. Not this building. You you, you are the living stones that God has built into a spiritual house, a temple. You are the dwelling place of the Spirit of Almighty God. You are the point of access for God's saving message. You are God's temple. And not only that, he says you're also God's priest. He's getting a twofer here. All of it wrapped up into one. Listen to the rest of this summary, this breathtaking description of God's opinion of who you are. This is what he says. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Did you have any idea? You aren't just a motley gathering of folks who managed to crawl out of bed this morning and make it into this building or in front of the screen. Before Jesus saved you, you were alone. Now, you are not alone. You're part of a family. Before Jesus, you knew no mercy. Now, you have been the recipient of God's mercy. Not only that, you are a royal priesthood. You are the ones that God uses to draw lost people to himself. You are the ones that God uses to shine the light of his glorious son into the Stygian darkness of this world. That is your calling. That is your identity. That is your destiny. You are living stones, the living temple of God, a holy priesthood. That and nothing less than that is what the church of Jesus Christ is. The story is told of how the king of the ancient Greek city-state, Sparta, once boasted to a visiting dignitary about the walls of Sparta. But the visiting monarch looked around and he saw no walls at all. And he said, well, where are these walls about which you boast so much? 
And the Spartan king pointed to his bodyguard of magnificent troops and said, There, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man a brick. Every woman, every man, every child a brick, a living stone. You are the church of Jesus Christ. You are the living temple of God. And when someone says that they love Jesus but has no use for the church, you need to have the courage to tell them that's not possible. With all of our flaws, with all of our problems, we are still precious to Jesus and still essential to His work. We are the living church of Jesus Christ and we are on the march and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Join me in prayer. Father, I pray this day that we will have a renewed view of who we are and whose we are. I pray this day that we will find ourselves called to a higher calling, not just as a gathering in a building somewhere, but in a way that we can't even imagine. We are holy and set apart. We are living, resurrected stones tied into one another, tied into our living stone, Jesus Christ. And we are building a temple, a means by which the world can have access to God, who can hear from God, can thank God, worship God, explore God, discover God. That's who we are, nothing less than that. Lord, I pray that we would never settle for anything less than that. Nor would we make apologies for being the church of Jesus. The body, the bride whom he loves so deeply and dearly. Rather, Lord, may we live in such a way as to honor that high calling so that the world might, through us, find a way to the God who wants to meet them as well. We pray that in the name of our living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.